right. How is it going, everyone? Uh, welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm so excited to be talking to Elena Natalinsky, who is the founder of Beanstalk. How is it going? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, it's going pretty well. Good, good. I am glad. So to, to get it started, if you can get, just give the listeners a little bit of a background on yourself, and then we can dive into what you're working on. Uh, sure. So I used to be a software engineer. I used to work for Microsoft, um, a couple startups, and then Airbnb. And then I realized I wanted to start my own company. Um, and uh, during that, that decision process, I was getting more and more involved with the Ethereum community, which if you guys are familiar, is a cryptocurrency that has smart contracts. Um, and when I decided to really dive into starting my own company in the space, um, I really, really looked at what are, the, what are some of the things that we're missing in the space to make cryptocurrency actually available as a payment system? Um, and one of the stark things that uh, I observed was the lack of projects working on privacy. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm working on. Um, and I can dive into that a bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So before we dive in, let's get some definitions out of the way for people that may ha have no idea about cryptocurrency. So can you kind of dive into what is Ethereum? What makes Ethereum different from, from other cryptocurrencies? And then we can go a little deeper into the privacy um, aspect that you're working on. Sure. I'll actually start with Bitcoin because I think that's the one that most people have actually heard of. Um, I think there was a survey done. I think almost 80% of Americans actually at least heard of Bitcoin, which is a really impressive number. Um, so Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency was started uh, almost 10 years ago or actually more than 10 years ago. And it really showed this proof of concept that you, you can actually have this borderless sovereign currency does not belong to any government. Um, and, you know, at first it was kind of dismissed as a joke. And then, you know, fast forward to today, we have huge companies like Facebook doing their own cryptocurrency, Libra. They're actually nations like China. They're trying to make their own like digital currency based on this technology. So it's, it definitely evolved from being a joke into being a much more serious thing. Um, and then, I mean, Ethereum is, uh, was probably a blockchain that, um, really brought attention to this space um, because it had the ability to make smart contracts. So smart contracts are a piece of code that can now run in this network. And what happened in, uh, in 2017 is that a lot of, a lot of people started making um, what's called ICOs, an initial coin offerings on top of Ethereum. Um, and you know, for better or worse, it brought in a, top, a ton of capital into this space. So I'm sure you guys heard of maybe like scams and like the, the blockchain world um, or the ludicrous amount of money that some of these companies are raising. And, you know, it was, you know, largely brought by the fact that it was now so easy to make these smart contracts to raise money from the public. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, it definitely does. It gives a little bit of the, of the history too. Um, one thing I want to add as a little bit of, of context, additional context is that, uh, a lot of people, especially in 2017, you know, use cryptocurrency and trade cryptocurrency as a way to to make money and a speculation and things like that. But there are uh, there there are plenty of companies out there that are kind of working on more um, different use cases and practical use cases um, for cryptocurrency, trying to push it forward. So, love to hear some of your thoughts on different use cases for cryptocurrency, and also kind of diving into Beanstalk and how it fits in in the whole equation. 
Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a misconception that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum are private. Um, people usually think, oh, like, you know, Bitcoin was used for dark markets. Of course, it's like this anonymous cryptocurrency. Um, but that's actually not the case. Bitcoin, Ethereum are probably the least private payment systems out there. Um, and to steal a quote from Ian Myers, uh, cryptocurrencies are like Twitter for your bank account. Um, every transaction you make on Ethereum, Bitcoin, and many others are, is basically broadcasted to the world in plain text. Um, and if you ever give somebody your address, they can look it up online uh, and basically see every transaction you've ever made. So it's literally like kind of publishing your bank statement permanently on the web. <laughs> um, and if you think about like, okay, well, let's just, you know, imagine for a moment that 50 years from now, um, people are actually using blockchain as their primary way of transacting. Uh, and it would be very difficult to imagine that world without privacy, right? Because even though, you know, you might have nothing to hide, um, your financial privacy is actually extremely important uh, for your security even. Um, if someone knows exactly uh, what coffee shop you go to every single morning, then they can extrapolate where you live uh, or where they can find you on certain days of the week. Um, so, you know, privacy is, is not necessarily, uh, you know, used for nefarious activities. We actually all have privacy already. And so um, my project is working on kind of bringing that same paradigm of expectations of what people can see about your financials into the crypto world as well. Um, yeah, and so uh, Beanstack is actually not based on any existing blockchain. We're actually building our own standalone blockchain. Um, and part of the reason is because privacy is actually a very difficult problem. You can't just kind of sprinkle privacy on top of existing solutions. Um, and there are teams that actually are trying to kind of put privacy on top of Bitcoin and top of Ethereum, and I can walk you through how that actually is not um, going to help in the long run. Um, so yeah, and uh, um, privacy is also very hard from a usability perspective. We actually do have privacy coins out in the wild, um, but they're extremely hard to use and basically see no traction. So uh, what we're working on is making privacy um, convenient because otherwise people are not going to use it. So you mentioned that you're not building on you know, in the theory, the Ethereum blockchain or other blockchains, you're making your own. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how does someone make their own blockchain? What is involved with that? And is it, and what does that even mean? And what does that allow you to do once you have your own blockchain? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, anyone can make their own blockchain. <laughs> um, basically, uh, what a blockchain node is, um, it's, you run a program on your computer, let's say, um, and your computer connects to other, other computers in the world, and that's how you form a network. Um, and then these nodes basically come to a consensus on certain statements. Uh, and those statements can be things like, this transaction actually did happen. And so then all, you know, all nodes in the network agree on the fact that that transaction happened. Um, and basically, to make it a bit more efficient, you want to batch those transactions in a block um, and then provide something called proof of work. Uh, basically, you're, you're saying, I didn't just, not just spamming the network, I can prove to you that I put in some work making this block. Um, and that's basically how 
you know, Bitcoin and other proof of work chains work. Um, there are many other different consensus mechanisms, but basically the concept is that you have a bunch of nodes being connected and they reach to a consensus on whether or not a transaction happened. <laughs> yeah. Got it. And something that I'm really interested in is is blockchain is this technology that that a lot of people talked about in 2017 on a hype mm -hmm. realm, but now people are talking about like, great, this is this exists. How do we use it to build business applications, to build practical applications? And it seems to me, at least what I hear from like A16Z and you know whoever puts yeah. out content on this, that there still hasn't been that wave of of apps or products that that use blockchain on a practical manner. Why do you think that is, and what do you think has to happen in order to bring blockchain into the mainstream, or even the early adopters? I feel like even the early adopters aren't using products on the blockchain yet, because there aren't so many out there. Yeah, no, you brought up a really excellent point, um, and to kind of build off uh, more on top of that, um, so all kind of cryptocurrencies right now are actually over $200 billion market cap, um, but none of them have actually won yet. You know, I can't go to the grocery store and buy anything with a Bitcoin. Um, so to your point, even though there's so much money in the space, there's there's not had like there, there isn't actually adoption, right? Um, and I'm, I think uh, I know what A16Z article you're referencing, but yeah, there there isn't like a Netscape moment for blockchain type payments. Um, and to answer your question of like, well, what what is that kind of Netscape moment? Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure, but we're basically trying everything. So what is like the actual pain point we're solving? Um, and the one thing that like kind of drives me to building this project is we're seeing a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. Um, there's a lot of drama, a lot, a lot of things happening in Hong Kong and China with authoritarian governments basically uh, having full control over their citizens. Um, you know, there's Venezuela situation where uh, the people's like worth and value are you know, is being dramatically devalued. Um, I found this article that, and it, this article is already outdated, but at the time it was written, a chicken was worth like 14 million bolivars because, uh, you know, the currency was just so highly uh, inflated. And in Venezuela, it was actually legal for people to transfer their funds from bolivars to any other currency. So they, they, were, they were stuck. Um, and, you know, when you, when you think about it, um, like it's, it seems extremely unfair that your worth, the fact that you have a full-time job, the fact that you're accruing this money, um, you know, could be devalued just based on the type of government that you're under. Um, and so maybe like the Netscape moment for blockchain technologies or blockchain payments is, you know, people basically saying, look, it doesn't make sense for us anymore to have fiat, the fiat, uh, government-based fiat um, as our primary currency. Do you, what are your thoughts on Libra as they first announced it and as there's becoming a little bit of drama recently as some companies are kind of backing out of the project, what do you think about Libra and in the whole e ecosystem and does it, will it matter in a century or do you think it might just fizzle out because it's, uh, it's like private? Um, that is also an excellent question. Um, so to give, you know, a little bit more context for people, um, Libra is a Facebook, uh, project. It aims to be a cryptocurrency. Um, it's not fully decentralized, so it's kind of like a hybrid cryptocurrency. Um, a lot of people are actually questioning whether or not it is even a cryptocurrency, but, um, and the way it works is that there are, there are a hundred validators where a validator 
is a huge company like PayPal or Visa. Um, and the Libra coin is backed by a reserve of currencies from different countries. So like the dollar, the euro, and so on. Um, and when Facebook first announced Libra, there were a lot of different opinions in the crypto community. A lot of people thought of this as a very positive thing because now it's educating people that cryptocurrency is not something scary. It's, you know, you can use Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp to, you know, send people cryptocurrency. And so it's like a much more familiar sort of, um, you know, transition from fiat to crypto. Um, but I think now people are kind of viewing this in a different light. I think because Facebook is now unfavorable with the US government, um, you know, it seems like everything they do is being highly questioned. And so I feel like they put this huge bullseye on crypto <laughs> um, because now, you know, Congress and the government is like very worried, like, wait a minute, companies, like anyone can just create their own currency. Like Facebook has, um, what was it, 3 billion users. <laughs> um, they can, you know, basically create their own currency and have, you know, a huge monopoly over this thing. Um, Actually, wait, I'm, I'm not sure how much I'm user space because but quite a lot. Yeah, it's up there for sure. It's, it's in the billions. <laughs> really? I don't know. Um, I should probably look this up. I just made that statement. Um, no, it's all good. They definitely have it. I think uh, across all of their products, I know they have at least two billion and they might, if I remember correctly, um, they might with with WhatsApp with all of their products, they might have across uh, three, uh, but I don't, I don't have it that, uh, but don't quote me on that. It's just what I, think I, re- what, what I think I remember. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. So that kind of, in a way, kind of backfired towards the crypto community. So, 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 like, there are a lot of people out there, I would say, you know, myself included, who, you know, I'm entrepreneurial. I'm, I, I kind of know how th- this stuff works. And I'm just kind of, a, this stuff as I'm, like, starting a company and idea validation and growing and raising money. And, um, I think there's a lot of people that are just waiting for the right timing. A lot of times startups are about about timing. And if you're too early, you know, that's unfortunate. And if you're too late, it means you missed the boat. I'm curious, how do you think about timing for Beanstalk? And how do you suggest people think about timing for just blockchain in general when it's not proven yet, but the, the, the first killer app uh, could be you know, just like Facebook or at least MySpace was was still a big company until Facebook, you know, took it out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, a lot of people in the space are asking the same question. Um, for me personally though, when I started this project, I, you know, I talked to some investors and I asked around and some investors immediately got it and they were like, yes, this makes sense. We need privacy because it's kind of ludicrous to think that we would have, you know, a a payment system with such huge transparency. You know, you're not going to convince, a business to have all their books out in the open. But then I talked to some people and they basically said it's too early for privacy. People don't care about privacy. Like crypto is being used for speculation only. And, you know, people don't really care about the fact that their, you know, transactions could be out in the open because maybe they're just using an exchange like Coinbase, right? So, you know, they don't, they don't really care about that aspect at all. And so for me, it was like, okay, well, if, if I'm hearing this kind of, first of all, polarizing opinion on privacy um, and the fact that it's too early for privacy, maybe it's actually the right time to start a privacy project because by the time those investors change that opinion, 
it would already be too late because there's market validation, quote unquote, because there's a company that has proven out <laughs> that privacy does matter. Um, but that's a kind of a very risky approach, right? Because you're, you can, you know, you could be completely wrong. And there've been, you know, multiple companies that we've never heard of that, you know, um, have just come up with a really great product, but at the wrong time. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something I'm personally worried about. So, I mean, kind of staying on Beanstalk for a second. So let's talk about um, uh, just a, a early adopter or like the earliest of adopters. They, mm -hmm. How would someone, excuse my naivete, I really don't understand blockchain enough to like actually put the pieces together, but you're building a privacy uh, blockchain, uh, which like, let's say I wanted to build something on like Beanstalk. Is mm -hmm. it how, because how does someone engage with Beanstalk? Uh, and, uh, you know, are you able to build products on top of it? Is it a, um, can you just kind of go a little deeper into the weeds on, on how someone can uh, engage? Yeah. yeah. So, um, privacy is really hard to, to do, right. <laughs> and I can go over exactly how our technology works, but because of that, we don't support smart contracts. So Ethereum, you know, has this ability to do, um, arbitrary programs. Um, we actually don't have that. So we have payments only. So I'm able to transact and send you some funds and you know you can send me some funds as well. Um, uh, we are thinking of doing kind of user-defined assets. So kind of how, how Ethereum, for example, had, um, if you are familiar with the, the history of 2017, um, Ethereum has a standard called ERC-20, which is kind of a, a, a defined way of how you write a smart contract for your own asset. So I can make it like, uh, an Elena coin or, you know, a Tron coin or like whatever that is. Um, so we're actually going to, uh, going to try and have that same functionality, but it'll be extremely limited. So you can only basically um, have the amount. So I can make my own coin and the only kind of variable I'm able to tweak is how many of them are going to be initially minted. Um, which if you look at how a lot of ERC-20 smart contracts are written, that's basically the only functionality they have to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I mean, it, it will be highly limited. The thing that we want to really focus on is how do you make private payments extremely convenient? Um, so we're going to just double down the payments use case because I still think the killer app for blockchain technologies is payments. And we haven't really even scratched the surface of what that means. Um, so kind of like the early adopters are people that are going to really care about privacy. Like they really understand that we are, you know, kind of going to the world of our data being collected by, you know, <laughs> so many entities and so many companies. Um, and there needs to be a push to kind of start changing your behavior to be more private, you know, centric. And so we actually, you know, there are um, many like apps that are kind of targeting that uh, market, you know, um, like tools that can, you know, would obfuscate your browser activity um, or, you know, give you some more privacy on the web. Um, and we'll probably try and like piggyback off of like that movement um, and um, find those people that really care about privacy first. That's awesome. I think it's a, I think it's a smart move because I think uh, many actually guests on the podcast over the last maybe 10 guests have, have said they think things are shifting back to privacy. It's Facebook, mm -hmm. Google, Instagram have kind of opened up this like no privacy of that's your right. data. And now there's going to be a little bit of a, of a reversion. Of, I don't know if that's a word. People are going to revert back to wanting to know, have their, have their data private. So I think your timing is impeccable. So what are some things that, that you, 
kind of like spend your time thinking about when you're not working on Beanstalk, which I'm sure is all the time, you know, because because you're a founder. But I'm curious, are there industries or problems or startups or technologies out in the world that you spend some time thinking about uh, that just interest you, even though you may not be working uh, on them actively? Yeah, so there actually is a product that, you know, if I had 20 more hours a day, I would actually work on. Um, and it's a better remote tool. So um, Beanstalk right now is two people. So there's me in San Francisco and my coworker is in Canada. So we're a remote team. Um, and, you know, how do you make a remote team be as efficient, if not more efficient than an in-person team? Like that's the thing that I've been thinking about a lot because there's actually a lot of advantages to working from home or like working from your own office space. Um, you know, your commute is like, 30 seconds, <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you have a lot of advantages, um, but traditionally remote teams have not, you know, been as efficient as in-person ones. Um, so that kind, of, that kind of got me thinking about, like, what are the tools that we have to facilitate remote work? And, you know, there's tons of companies that are kind of in, in that space right now, um, but still, like, something isn't working. Like, um, you can think about the paradigm of, like, Slack. Um, I think it's a, it's a very like a push kind of, um, or synchronous, I guess that some people would say system where, you know, I have a question and I message them and they immediately get this notification and they get distracted from whatever they were focusing on. Like they might've been like in the zone, but now they have this notification they need to re react to. Um, and I actually think that those kind of push, um, like communication styles, um, are more disruptive towards your concentration and are actually worse. Um, and what I discovered working remotely is that, um, you know, a pull kind of or asynchronous communication model is a lot better where you kind of like queue up your questions and you have like, you separate them by topics and some of them might be urgent and maybe you'll ping that person, but some of them are not urgent. You just kind of want to get them out of your head. Um, and there really hasn't been a good tool for that yet. Like probably the best tool is email, but I hate email, so I never use it. <laughs> So yeah, that's kind of what I've been thinking about. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I, I agree with all of that, especially some of the downsides of Slack. I'm curious, have you heard of this tool called Tandem? Yeah, so actually a lot of people have been telling me to use it. <laughs> and I mean, it, it seems async. I, I think it's more asynchronous than Slack. Yeah, so I tried using Tandem and um, I personally didn't get it. Now, <laughs> you know, it might work for other people, um, but uh, and, and maybe I tried their product really early. I, I haven't really been paying attention um, about some of the updates they were doing. But when I tried it, the biggest feature was basically, you know, joining a room where you have audio and you can kind of hear the other person. And then they would have like some kind of like preset um, rooms, like the water cooler. So like in the real life, you might go to the kitchen and start talking to people. Um, and so they have like this virtual like water cooler kind of room. Um, and to me, that was like, okay, well, it's not really like, you know, I can, you know, I can just like, like, like my coworker and I have actually had this where we just called each other and we don't necessarily have to talk. It's just that we have audio on such that if we do have questions, um, you know, I can ask the other person. And so to me, that feature wasn't really like useful. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I feel like, it felt like it didn't actually solve the thing that was useful for me, which is like, how do you make this better pull model, uh, instead of the push model? So yeah. I yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that there, that there seems to be tons of investors 
that are thinking about future of work, remote work, freelancing. And I think it's kind of interesting because as someone who I've been in, I've been in kind of the future of work freelance realm for about three years now. And I think for the first time I'm observing what like a hype cycle is because, (laughs) because, I mean, future of work, obviously we're all going to be working in the future. So that's, that's a sector, but, um, there, there just seems to be so much money be thrown at anything future of work and reality. There are these unique problems that like one that you just mentioned, which is asynchronous communication. And, you know, I, I don't know of a, of a tool tackling that either. I'm kind of curious what other, like if you were an investor, let's say you, you know, a hundred million bucks to, 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 to deploy into work tools or just tools or in general, or even just startups, where, what else would you want to fund that you wish existed in your life that, that doesn't necessarily exist right now. Um, do you mean like specifically for remote work or I would, uh, let's, let's go broad. Let's, I mean, it, it can be for remote work. It can be for work in general, but let's just pretend that this, I'm just going to make this up on the fly. You're an investor. Congratulations. It is the bring stock fund. <laughs> and, uh, you, okay. you, can just, you can just put money into things that, that you want to see grow and become a thing um, or problems that you want to solve. Um, I know I'm like putting you on the spot here a little bit, but like the number just, <laughs> it just like got into my head. So I'm curious if you have some thoughts on where else would you want to see a product built or what other even problems would you want solved in the world? Huh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, the first thing that came to mind, I'm not sure if I, I'm definitely being biased by the conversation that we just had about remote work <laughs> and I'm not sure if this is a good answer and I haven't looked into if there is a, like a you know, a solution for this, but, um, we just ha- you know, we, we happen to be a remote first company because, you know, we're two people and we're already remote. So everything we have is, you know, online using, you know, all these collaborative online tools. And so if we were to hire a third or fourth or fifth person, what I realized is that it's actually much easier to get high quality talent if you're not stuck with your geographical area, especially in San Francisco, you know, we're a startup, we have limited funding and salaries for engineers here are astronomical. <laughs> so you have to, you know, compete with that. Um, so, you know, that's obviously a lot harder. And so what would be wonderful is if there was, um, and like one scam, maybe this already exists, but kind of, you know, this website or so, some sort of a service that gives you access to, you know, more senior folks um, who, you know, just don't want to live in San Francisco because, you know, living here is hard um, and kind of have like this, um, you know, a, a tool where you can find really high quality remote you know, engineers or, or workers um, to kind of start building your company out that way. Uh, yeah, that would be me. <laughs> it's, almost like a, it's almost like a marketplace for senior hires because and you can, you'll find hungry people everywhere, you know, but, but when you're looking for experience in a certain domain, um, it's uh, from what I hear, like senior hire recruiting is super hard, especially when, as you said, you're uh, geographically limited so mm-hmm. I think that would that should that should be built. I would I would use that, you know, when I get to a company that's hiring for senior folks. Yeah. I mean it doesn't have to be just senior people, but yeah, that is a you know, that's obviously a problem because those are much harder to find. Do you think that uh do you think that in San Francisco re- remote culture is gonna become more common? Uh, um not just pushed by founders, but pushed by VCs. VCs have always kind of been like, oh, have in-person teams because of culture, because I can check in on you to see what you're all are doing. <laughs> yeah. um, but because of the, the high rent everywhere in San Francisco, do you think that's going to change on the VC side? Yeah, I think so. Um, and kind of a observation. So I'm not, I'm not a TLFL myself, but I kind of, you know, 
know about the program and know a lot of people in the program. And the trend that kind of I've have, I've been observing is that you know the older TL folks. Um, deal fellows uh, have, you know, stayed in San Francisco or have even moved to be in San Francisco to be in this like vibrant community of founders. And, you know, this last batch of like deal fellows um, chose not to do that. They chose not to move to San Francisco. And I'm seeing also YC companies, you know, once they get their funding, they choose to move elsewhere and to not stay here. Uh, And part of the reason is cost and, you know, a huge competition for engineers. and, you know, then once you have such huge competition for engineers, then the loyalty of that engineer is, you know, questionable because you have these, you know, patterns of people switching jobs every 18 months or so because there's just so much excitement and so much shiny, <laughs> like the shiny syndrome um, that people move. And so, you know, um, if you move away from here, you know, you might have access to, uh, you know, talent that will stick around for longer because they don't have incentives to leave as much as, you know, they do here. Um, and your, your money is going to go a lot further, you know, um, engineering in San Francisco is a lot more expensive than practically anywhere else. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with that. And as someone who contemplated moving to San Francisco, uh, in the last couple of months, but didn't just because of because uh, of rent prices and a cost of apartment. Um, I understand that. I, th- I think I do think there is a value in being in San Francisco, 100. percent But it's just what is the cost uh, att- attributed to that value, or kind of tied to that value. So uh, my my last uh, one of my last questions for you is. Um, you know, you, you are a, a younger founder, you know, like, like not 40, 50 senior, senior, kind of like me. And you've had some success and you, you've, you, with your career. And uh, I'm kind of interested to hear what advice would you have for anyone that's, you know, coming out of college or in their mid twenties or early thirties to have a super, super, you know, set themselves up for success in their career. Um, and uh, yeah, kind of what what advice would you have for for people that are on the earlier side that want to have have awesome careers? Oh man, um, so I kind of chose a very careful career path up until this point, <laughs> up until the starting my company point. Uh, so I went to you know Microsoft, which is a much bigger, much more established, older company, um, and it was a very safe choice. Um, and what I realized, you know, like there are you know friends kind of in my circle who I think are way more successful than I am. And they they took a much more different path. They took the more riskier path of, you know, joining a startup or, you know, starting their own company or joining a YC company or even starting a YC company. Um, and so, you know, and obviously you hear a bunch of failure stories. So that path is, you know, is more riskier. But what I realized is that um, if you have the chance and, you know, if you're young, then you do, you should go for quote unquote asymmetrical opportunities. Um, so asymmetrical, asymmetrical opportunities is basically where, you know, um, you, you have a chance of getting a reward that's disproportional to the work you put in. <laughs> so for example, you can work like eight hours a day or like 10 hours a day really hard at your job and you're going to get, you know, a normal salary. And let's say, you know, you work, um, you know, 10 hours at a startup, but it becomes successful, then the reward is like much like, you know, disproportionate if it goes well. Now, you know, oftentimes it doesn't happen, but um, when you're young, that's basically the only time in your life that you get to kind of experiment. And the other part is, um, the other kind of like asymmetric opportunity, quote unquote, is the fact that you get to meet 
a lot more interesting people that will help you later on, even if you fail. So, you know, like, let's say you start a company um, and, and it fails. In two years, you realize you didn't find the you know, product market fit, et cetera. But let's say you went through YC and you meant, you, you know, you met all these, you know, great investors or maybe great other founders who gave you advice along the way. And so now you have your, you know, your network is just much more established. Um, and so, you know, later on, like whatever career path you choose, you're going to have like a better foundation for it. So that's kind of my two cents. <laughs> yeah, th that's awesome. Your piece on just the network in general, whether you succeed, whether you fail, it's almost like a network hack by going, right. going this risky startup path and um, it's not like there's that much to lose when you're right out of college yeah uh, which is i think uh yeah I, I fully agree with that so my last question for you is kind of on the same lines of, of the last question but kind of more broad in that mm -hmm. you you've seen what it's like in a big company uh you now are taking a swing at starting your own startup and you know you're off to, to to a fast start. I'm kind of curious to hear. There are a lot of people that might be listening. They might be like 10 as a kid or 50 as an adult that wants to that's retired that wants to do something exciting that want to start a company, but they don't necessarily know the first step to get started or how to get in the game or how to get funded or how to get the the idea or the product out there. What did, what general advice would you have for someone that wants to get started but just doesn't necessarily know the first step to get in there? Yeah. So. Um Two points. One, I want to make a quick note about age. <laughs> um, so there's like misconception that companies are only started by young people. Um, statistically speaking, if you look, <laughs> the more successful companies are actually started by older folks. So if you are past, you know, the prime age of 25 or whatever it is, um, you know, like that's you actually have a better chance of creating a successful company. So age should never be a deterrent. And the other way around, like obviously we have tons of examples of really young folks dropping out of college even and starting like really successful companies. So regardless of where you are in your life journey, um, <laughs> you know, the, the path is, you know, is still open if you want to start your own company. Now, okay, let's say you decide to start a company. Now what? Like, let, let's say you want to get funding, you want to find some investors, what happens? Um, so this is kind of like where the, the advantage of San Francisco really comes into play. So I used to live in other cities, uh, Seattle, Boston, kind of the DC suburbia area. If I wanted to start a company there, I would not have any idea where to go. Like, you know, just the investment scene is just really not, not there. Um, and I didn't know a single person in the area who started their own company who I can ask questions to. And here, it's a completely different story. You know, let's say I had zero idea about how, how to fundraise. Um, you know, I have so many friends who either work at small startups or who are founders themselves. And I could just go and say, look, I don't know it, you know, a first thing about it, like, how did you find your first investor? And, you know, and they would kind of walk me through their process. And, you know, every, you know, every journey is um, kind of unique, um, but you at least have, you know, a um, stepping stone of who to ask for you to get to that next stage. And, you know, you might ask the first person, they say, oh, like, you know, this is, these are my investors. Do you want to, do you want to go talk to them? And you go talk to them and let's say, you know, your relationship doesn't work out or maybe they don't want to invest in your project or whatever it is, you can ask them for their recommendations, right? And then they give you, you know, three other names and you go talk, talk to them. And then you have like this network effect of kind of like, you know, gathering people who, you know, maybe you're not going to work with, but at least now you know who to ask. Um, and in San Francisco, like that process is way easier, right? Than in any other city. Um, and obviously if you get into an accelerator program like YC or, you know, there, uh, there are many others, 
like Techstars, I think is another one. Um, you know, that's obviously like a much easier path as well because the program will kind of guide you and make those connections for you. So, yeah. All right. You all heard it here first. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and jamming from cryptocurrency to remote work to what you're working on with Beanstalk and beyond. So thank you so much for coming on and, and, and having a conversation with me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.